Well, after a half term which has seen um, Annabelle, uh, Sam and James and myself exploring various parts of Sussex, I've been reminded of the beauty of the world in which we live. Trees of every shape and colour from the South Downs Way, the rolling hills of uh, the South Downs, the cliffs around Beachy Head with the sea crashing in. It is hard not to see the beauty of the world which God has made. Perhaps you've had some time over half term to witness that yourself. Yet for all the reminders of the beauty of the world in which we live, it's impossible to escape the reality that this world is also broken too. Beautiful, yes, broken most certainly. Now any number of things could remind us of that. Perhaps a sudden or an ongoing illness, a close bereavement, a relationship breakdown, perhaps just a look in the mirror. But I want to mention one thing, which I think all of us will recognise as evidence of a broken world, and that is the ongoing refugee crisis. For we are living in a world with the biggest refugee crisis since World War II. The UNHCR at the end of last year said that the number of forcibly displaced people stands at 65 million. That's larger than the population of the UK. If all the displaced people in the world were one country, it would be the 21st largest country in the world. Now, we all know of the refugees from Syria, but there are other conflicts which don't get the media billing of Syria. Eritreans in Ethiopia that we heard of two weeks ago when we launched CSW as our mission partner. Nigerians in the north of that country fleeing from civil war. Afghanis still fleeing their countries in their thousands. Just because the recently cleared jungle camp in Calais included a mix of economic migrants and refugees should not obscure the reality of the size of the refugee crisis. Now, these refugees, as Josh Brown's pictures remind us a fortnight ago, not faceless people on a boat or in a camp, but individuals known to God. These people force us to confront the fact that while we live in a beautiful world, it is also a broken world. But perhaps they also spark a question which is at the back of most of our minds, and that's this. Where is God in this broken world? How is he at work in the mess? And perhaps we find ourselves asking the additional question of ourselves this time. How might we be part of what God wants to do with the mess. Now, those may be questions you're asking if you're seeking Christian faith here today. I think there'll certainly be questions you're asking if you're already a follower of Jesus Christ and you want to serve him. And it's those questions of how is God at work in the mess that we're going to be opening up today as we look at our next chapter in the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. Just a reminder, we're spending this term looking at the story of Joseph from the first book of the Bible. It's a story of one family about 3,000 years ago in whom God was powerfully at work. And yet I think we've already seen this term, that for all its age, this story still speaks to us as it's in God's word. And it is a way in which God wants to speak to us today. Let's just recap the story of where we've got to so far. The scene is ancient Egypt. 
And Joseph finds himself as number two to the Pharaoh, effectively prime minister, administering that country through a time of feast and famine. The seven years of abundant harvest have passed, during which Joseph ensured that grain was collected so that the ensuing famine could be survived. And now it's not only the Egyptians who are buying grain from Joseph, but people from other countries as well, refugees in their own way, seeking survival from famine in their own land. And it's in this context that Joseph's brothers come all the way from Canaan and meet Joseph for the first time in over 20 years. The last time they saw him was on the back of a cart being taken off as a slave by Midianite traders and they'd just sold him. And they had the money in their pockets. They'd sold him having first attacked him and thrown him into a pit. Not something they could look back on with pride. Now, of course, when they meet Joseph in Egypt after 20 years, they don't recognize him. He doesn't tell them who he is. In in fact, he accuses them of being spies and takes one of their number, Simeon, captive, while they're sent back to Canaan to find their youngest brother, Benjamin, and bring him back to Joseph to prove that they are who they say they are. Yet, unbeknown to them, he also returns the money that they paid for their grain, something they only discover on their way home. And so this chapter, chapter 43, is about the second meeting that Joseph has with his brothers. So just take your Bibles and turn with me, if you can, to page 48, because we're going to look at this chapter together this morning. Uh, Page 48, it's Genesis 43, uh, verses 1 to 34. There's a a pink-coloured batting order that shows where we're going. Because what I want to do this morning, uh, there's a huge amount going on these verses. We can't possibly explore all of it. What I want us to do, though, is to stand back a little bit from this story and look at how Joseph is actually the agent of God in this broken and messy situation. Then I want to see how that points forward to Jesus as the agent of God and finally how it challenges us as agents of God too. And as we do so, I think we're going to see how God was at work in the mess then how he's been at work in the mess since, and how he can work through us in the mess today. Okay, first of all then, Joseph is the agent of God. Should we just track the story through this chapter? Is that okay? So the chapter opens in verse 1, if you look at that, with a famine still severe in the land. It's still going on in Canaan, and the food which the brothers have brought back from their first visit to Egypt has run out. And so Jacob asks the brothers to go back and get more food, but they say they can't without taking Benjamin with them, as Joseph had asked them to. Now, and eventually, after some complaining, Jacob's very self-centred, Jacob eventually lets his favourite son go with his brothers, and they all travel down to Egypt. This time, they get taken to Joseph's house, which leads them to being very frightened because they think it's about the silver that's been found in their sacks, They attempt to excuse themselves to Joseph's stewards. He assures them everything is fine. Joseph comes in and sees his younger brother Benjamin for the first time. He's utterly overcome. He has to go out to collect himself. And the scene ends with Joseph eating with his brothers for the first time, yet his identity is still hidden. Bit of a cliffhanger. 
It's a story of compelling images and powerful emotions. Who is not moved by Joseph's reaction to his younger brother after he hadn't seen him for 20 years? And he goes out to weep. But the question is, how is God at work in this story? Where in this story of famine and feast is God's activity to be seen? And I think the key to looking at this is to see the three times in this chapter in which God is mentioned. Because there are three particular moments where God is mentioned by name. And I think these are references, are the clue to how God is at work. Because all three references are about what God has done or will hopefully do. Let's look at the first one together. Look with me at verse 14. These are the words of Jacob to his sons. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let you, your other brother and Benjamin, come back with you. May God grant you mercy. May God grant you mercy. Mercy is exactly what the brothers need. Why? Because mercy is not being treated as we deserve. Mercy is not being treated as we deserve. And they need that. They've not returned quickly with Benjamin, as they said they would. They think they've got their money back under false pretenses. And above all, they know what they did to Joseph all these years ago. They are seriously going to need mercy from God. They know they're guilty. They're in need of mercy. Secondly, look at verse 23. This is the words of the steward to the brothers when they give him their excuse about what happened with the money. This is what he says. It's all right, he says. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. So here God is spoken of as the one who has somehow provided generously, in this case with financial provision. So God is spoken of as a God who will give mercy. Then the God is spoken of as a God who will give generously. And thirdly, look with me at verse 29. And Joseph's words to Benjamin. Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. God be gracious to you, my son. God is here identified with being gracious. Being gracious is when we get more than we deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. Grace is when we get more than we ever deserved. It's one step up on mercy, and that is what Joseph asks for his brother. So God is identified, you see here, with mercy, with generosity, with generous provision, and with grace. That is how God's activity is understood. Yeah? Now, here's the really exciting thing. All those three things that God is understood as somehow doing or being involved in, They all actually happen through Joseph. Joseph is the agent who does all of these things on God's behalf. Think about it. It, It's Joseph who shows mercy to his brothers. He does not treat them as they deserve. He has compassion on them, guilty as they are, and the tears that flow are evidence of that. God's mercy is seen in Joseph's behaviour. Secondly, it is Joseph who provides for his brothers generously. The money in the sacks, it didn't fall from the sky, you know. Joseph asked for it to be put there. 
So God's generous provision was actually made real in Joseph's actions. And thirdly, it is Joseph who demonstrates grace to Benjamin and his brothers. They could never have dreamed of a feast when they were facing starvation in Canaan. Yet here they are drinking and eating freely, and Benjamin receives special provision with more food than anyone else. Do you see what's going on here? It's as if Joseph is actually kind of God's agent, God's hands and feet in this story. Because what is spoken of as God's actions are actually delivered through Joseph. He is the one who makes God's activity real among his people. God is not working or making things happen through zaps and miracles. He is doing his work through Joseph. Now that's really important, I think, because it helps us not only get under the skin of the story, but it's a truth that points forward in two really important ways. If what I've said is true, if what's going on in this story is that that kind of God's grace, mercy and provision are being channeled through one man, which is Joseph, that suggests and points forward in two important ways. Number one, it points forward to God's supreme agent, which is Jesus Christ. And secondly, it points forward to how you and I might be agents for God today. So let's look at those. First of all, it's hard not to read this account of Joseph's mercy and generous provision and grace and think that is exactly what Jesus, God's supreme agent, showed in his earthly ministry. Mercy. Jesus was a man rich in mercy and compassion. He did not treat people as tradition dictated or as they thought they deserved. Blind Bartimaeus cried out, Have mercy on me, as Jesus passed by on the streets of Jericho. People told him to be quiet, but Jesus had mercy on him. He stopped him, he called him and healed him. Jesus had mercy on the woman caught in adultery, on Zacchaeus, the crooked tax collector, on Peter who denied him, where others saw punishments to be meted out and moral rules to be enforced, Jesus showed mercy and compassion. He did get angry, but it was usually at other people's hardness of heart. If Joseph showed mercy that day in Egypt, Jesus showed mercy again and again and again. Secondly, generous provision. Well, Jesus was a man of ongoing generous provision. I'm thinking of the feeding of the 5,000, where people were not given just a snack, but a feast with basketfuls left over. I'm thinking of a well, where I stood in Samaria in the West Bank just a few months ago, Jacob's well just south of Nablus, where Jesus stood with a Samaritan woman and promised her water, living water, that would never run dry. I'm thinking of when Jesus offered life, as he called it, life in all its fullness. If Joseph provided generously that day, Jesus provided generously again and again and again. 
and grace. Jesus was that man of grace. That free gift, that grace was seen most wonderfully in the cross when Jesus freely gave his life for others as an innocent man dying for others who were guilty, including you and me. Because you see, each one of us is part of the reason for our broken world. Each one of us has turned away and gone our own way. We may not have thrown our brother into a pit, but we have all thought and acted as if no one was looking, least of all God. Yet Jesus took all our sin, for that is what it is. He took it on himself so it doesn't have to be on us. Not because we asked him to, not because we deserved it, but because Jesus is rich in grace. If Joseph showed grace to Benjamin and his brother that day, then Jesus did it when he stretched out his arms on the cross. How has God been at work in our messy and broken world? Yes, he was at work through his agent Joseph, a man who lived out God's mercy and generosity and grace. But most wonderfully, God was at work in his son Jesus, who lived out God's enduring character of mercy for the broken, generosity for those in need, and grace to sinners not only to people then, but to every generation since. Because even in today's broken and hurting world, Jesus remains God's gift, the evidence of his mercy, generosity, and grace. For the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was not just for people then, but for everybody today. In Jesus, we can all know God's compassion, If we cry out like Bartimaeus did, Lord, have mercy on me, Jesus will not pass by. The cross of Jesus covers every one of your sins and mine. We do not need to stand under God's judgment, but can run and shelter and stay in his arms of love. The question is, Have we received that for ourselves? When I talk about God's mercy and his generosity and grace, is that something you know for yourself? Listen, if we are proud and self-righteous, if we think we are fine on our own without God's grace, if we're confident in our own moral uprightness and standing, we can expect to hear a challenge from Jesus just as the Pharisees did. You ain't all right on your own. But if we know ourselves to be in need... If we know the brokenness of the world, not only on the news, but in our own lives. If we cry out, Lord, have mercy. Jesus is full of compassion. For he loves us and cares for us. Have we experienced God's mercy? Have we experienced God's grace for ourselves? If mercy is God's compassion and kindness, grace is like a gift bigger than we can ever imagine. Perhaps like Joseph's brothers, there's a sin from years ago in your life that you think God can't forgive. The cross says, yes, it can, and yes, he does. You haven't done anything 
to deserve God's grace and forgiveness and love, but that's the whole point. It's a free gift. You see, Joseph was God's agent to his brothers at that time. But Jesus is God's agent for all people and for all time. Joseph as an agent of God, Jesus as an agent of God, finally us as agents of God. Because I don't think we can stop there. We can't stop at admiring Joseph as God's agent or even thanking God for Jesus as his agent of mercy and compassion and grace. I think we have to go further and ask what their example means to us. Because you see, blind Bartimaeus, he didn't just receive mercy from Jesus that day in Jericho. He also followed in his way. He followed in his steps. And that's what Jesus called his disciples to do, to walk in his way and live out his message and his character for ourselves. The Sermon on the Mount is all about that. Jesus didn't just show mercy, he also taught, blessed are the merciful. If we're followers of Jesus this morning and we've known his mercy, his generosity and grace in our own lives, I think we have to ask how we, like Joseph, might be God's agent in the world today. As we saw earlier, I think this world is in desperate need of mercy and grace. I was staggered just a week or so at the response when unaccompanied minors were brought from the jungle camp in Calais to be reunited with their families here in the UK. And yet some of the papers the next day, instead of celebrating this fairly moderate act of mercy question that some of the refugees look too old to be children. Are we really so short of mercy that we can't let a hundred young people into a country of 60 million, people who by any account are in real need? I think sometimes our reservoir of mercy as a country, which has for generations run richly, is running pretty dry. I think in our society, Any of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus need to take the lead in being agents of God's mercy, compassion, and grace. I have to say I find Pope Francis a great example here. I'm not saying I agree with him on everything, but his example and teaching on mercy is hugely helpful. He has designated 2016 as a year of mercy in which he prays that the church, and I quote, will be steeped in mercy so that we can go out to every man and woman woman bringing the goodness and tenderness of God. Mercy means living out God's mercy and compassion on those in need wherever we come across them. As Pope Francis has demonstrated, mercy does not mean changing the teaching of the Bible on key issues such as marriage or life in the womb, but it means treating people who have perhaps fallen short of that ideal not with judgment, but mercy. I wonder where you and I are called to be agents of God in showing mercy and grace. Perhaps like Joseph... We need to show it in our family, offering compassion and forgiveness even when we are sure the other person is in the wrong. As a father, I often find my dealing with my children's mistakes 
falls far short of the compassion modelled by Jesus. What will it look like for you to show mercy in your family? Perhaps we need to show mercy in the workplace, treating a colleague or a client in need with a care and concern that goes beyond what is expected. What will it look like for you to show mercy in the place where you are tomorrow morning? Perhaps we need to show it in our community, not passing by when someone in our road or neighbourhood is in need, offering a room in our house to someone in need. What will it look like for us to show mercy in the community where God has placed you? I haven't got all the answers to that. But I know we are called to be a people who live out the mercy and grace that was seen in Joseph and that is seen in Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we abandon truth or the call to holy living, but we temper it with mercy and grace. And that's going to be hugely important, by the way, in the years to come as our society becomes increasingly baffled by and perhaps even hostile to the way in which the church sticks to what the Bible teaches about gender and sexuality and marriage while society is changing its understanding. Because if we are not a people of mercy and grace, we'll be no better than the Pharisees. You see, Joseph was an agent of God, living out his mercy and grace. Mercy and grace that was seen perfectly in Jesus. I'm challenged about how I will be an agent of God's mercy and grace today. I just want to end with a final picture, and that is the feast with which our chapter concludes. Joseph and his brothers feasting and drinking freely together. There's that lovely detail, isn't there, as the brothers were sitting in age order. And of course they look at each other and think, well, how do they know? How did this person know what age we are? Now this meal that Joseph has with his brothers is not the end of the reconciliation journey. Joseph, after all, has yet to reveal himself to his brothers. But I think this meal does represent a foretaste of an eventual reconciliation. And for the time being, this meal suggests to the brothers that they, in some wonderful way, are known, that they're provided for, and that they're welcomed. All of which is a real blessing in itself, but points forward to a greater blessing to come. And I just want to say, as we come round the Lord's table this morning we come in the same way. We come as people somehow wonderfully known. Known by name. We come as people provided for in Jesus Christ. And we come as people welcomed. The bread and the wine are signs that we have got far more than we ask and far more than we deserve. It's God's grace poured out for us. But this meal also points forward to a time when we will be fully reconciled with God in the new creation and the heavenly banquet that we will enjoy there. My prayer is that we will feed on Christ today so that we will know afresh God's mercy and grace towards us so that we can be filled with abundant life and be strengthened to be agents of his mercy and grace in a beautiful but broken world.